If you could foresee everything that happened, if you could know how to deal with chaos, threats, war, then you wouldn't need an executive. You could just be Congress and write it all out. But I think the founders wanted the executive to have much more flexibility because they knew you couldn't foresee and enumerate every possible thing that would happen that would be a threat to the nation's security or foreign affairs or even in some time in the execution of the laws. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Miriam George. With the 2020 general election just a few weeks away, the national focus is on the office of the presidency. Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution formally grants the president the power to enforce laws, direct the armed forces, and represent the U.S. to the rest of the world. But over time, the role of the president has expanded. Modern-day presidents shape public policy in a way that is likely more powerful than our founding fathers ever anticipated. Is this striking expansion in presidential power legally permissible? Is it normatively desirable? And what are its implications? To explore these questions and more, I'm joined by Professors Sai Prakash and John Yu. Professor Prakash teaches on constitutional law, foreign relations law, and presidential powers at the University of Virginia School of Law. He is the author of The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. Professor Yu teaches on constitutional law and foreign relations law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. He is also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the Hoover Institution. He is the author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Thank you to Professors Prakash and you for joining us. To set the stage for our discussion, perhaps you both can begin by giving our listeners a brief summary of what you argue in your books and, more generally, your stances on expanding presidential power. Professor Yu, would you like to begin? Uh, sure, yeah, I'll go first, and then Sai can interrupt me throughout continuously, like the president he so much admires. Uh, I argue in the book, in my book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, which is it's sort of an effort to trick people into reading about the presidency under the guise that they're reading about Donald Trump. But also, Donald Trump has raised so many questions about the Constitution and presidential power that it's a, it's a useful lens, actually, to understand the presidency. So my argument is that Sai and I are both originalists. I think we both think the starting point for a constitutional interpretation is the text as understood by those who ratified it and wrote it. But we have a different view, I think, about how presidential power expands. So my view is that when the founders used the phrase the executive power in Article II of the Constitution, they had in mind the concept of a power that could expand in response to circumstance. So the idea of the executive power itself is relatively new in political theory by the time of the founding. This idea really comes to fruition, I think, with Locke for the founders. You see it most extensively discussed in Alexander Hamilton's contributions to the Federalist. And there you see this idea that the executive exists. And I mean, the executive is important because it's always in existence and it can react quickly and decisively to circumstances and events could not be regulated or even anticipated by the legislative power. And so I argue in the book 
that uh, presidential power therefore can't be strictly demarcated and enumerated because that would almost defeat the very reason why we have an executive power in the Constitution in the first place. If you, if you could foresee everything that happened, if you could know how to deal with chaos, threats, war, then you wouldn't need an executive. You could just be Congress and write it all out, right? We're saying in this case, if this happens, then do this. If this happens, do that. And just delegate it all to legislative controlled agencies. But I think the founders wanted the executive to have much more flexibility because they knew you couldn't foresee and enumerate every possible thing that would happen that would be a threat to the nation's security or foreign affairs, or even in some time in the execution of the laws. Now, the flip side is that it's not a one-way ratchet. That doesn't mean the power just keeps growing and growing. It also, if the circumstances recede that call for the expansion of power, I argue that executive power can narrow. And so one of the interesting, I think it's interesting things in, uh, that I talk about in this book is how in some areas, President Trump has been using presidential power actually to reduce the size of the executive branch, to reduce the day-to-day power of the executive branch, and even that of the federal government as a whole. Professor Prakash? Sure. So John's book and my book complement each other. John's book is really focused on President Trump and uh, several discrete but important issues that have arisen during the Trump administration. My book is really not about the president at all. It's really about what the executive branch has become. And, you know, the book sort of starts off with discussing the original presidency. It describes a powerful institution, but with limits with respect to waging war, making treaties, uh, and with respect to law execution. Unlike John, I don't think that the vesting clause of Article 2 grants the president sort of a shifting or changing set of powers under the rubric of executive power. I think the executive power is principally about law execution. That's where the phrase, or that's where the word comes from. And that because executives tended to have other sorts of power, those powers tended to be called executive, right? So what Locke called the federative power for most of his book, he, I think, once or twice called the executive power over foreign affairs. And the idea was executives not only execute the law, but they typically have some sort of authority over foreign affairs. And so that's how foreign affairs came to be viewed as an executive power. So like John, I think that the president's supposed to execute the laws. He has some authority over foreign affairs, although we differ on how much. And then, you know, we differ on whether the president has sort of an emergency prerogative power by virtue of the uh, vesting clause. If you flash forward uh, 200 years to the present from the founding, I think we see an executive that um, has acquired new sorts of authorities that weren't contemplated by the Constitution. So, for instance, presidents now uh, wage war without congressional authorization. Um, I have argued and others have argued that that is a usurpation of Congress's authority to declare war because, in fact, if you wage war, you are actually declaring it. And then with respect to treaties, presidents now make international agreements without Senate consent, um, certainly without the two-thirds Senate consent. And if you think of, think of something like NAFTA, right? NAFTA is basically a treaty that was approved by Congress by simple majorities, but not by the Senate by two-thirds. And then finally, with respect to law execution, the president really isn't as focused on law execution these days. He's really more focused on policy formation. We expect our presidents to run for office, making a bunch of campaign promises to reform 
policy and law. And when they get into office, they naturally try to fulfill those promises. But these promises and the pressure to satisfy them, I think, transform the executive from an entity focused on law execution to an entity focused on policy change. And so presidents try to work through Congress to enact their reform agendas. But if they can't, they adopt what President Obama called a pen and phone strategy. They work administratively to uh, push their policy and, and law and legal agendas. And we saw this during the Obama administration. If it, if it didn't get what it wanted by a, a legislation, it would just do so administratively. And we're seeing similar things with this presidency. But the end result is the president is a lawmaker by virtue of uh, expressed delegations of legislative power, by virtue of the Chevron doctrine, and by a, a host of different techniques adopted by the executive branch to justify what I would take to be deviations from, from uh, statutory authority. And so that's a descriptive, that's descriptive. And then, you know, the book obviously um, tries to discuss why we're seeing this, why we see it from the presidency. And one argument is that um, if you have a living uh, constitution, you shouldn't be surprised that the presidency is going to change. That is to say, if Congress is acquiring new legislative powers, and if the courts are fashioning new rights and, and reading out of the constitution old rights, of course, the president's going to do the same thing. And so part of the book, and I'll end with this point, the book is uh, is a plea to progressives to, to rethink their commitment to a living constitution because you can't have a living Congress and uh, living constitutional rights without also having a living presidency. And so what, you know, Arthur, Arthur Schlesinger called an imperial presidency could be re-understood as a living one. And you can't be opposed to a living presidency, but, but be against uh, the other forms of metamorphoses in the Constitution. Great. Thank you both. Professor Yu, from your perspective, is there such thing as an overexertion of presidential power? And how do we determine where to draw that line? I think that uh, based on my original uh, theory that I was setting out just a few minutes ago, um, you would expect most of the exertion of presidential power, its expansion would be in foreign affairs and national security. Um, you would expect to see less of it in domestic affairs uh, for two reasons. One is domestic affairs are much more predictable. Uh, that's why when it comes to domestic affairs, Article One does have such an extensive enumeration of powers. Plus, if uh, the federal government doesn't act in domestic affairs, you still have the states as a backup to regulate. In fact, the states are the primary regulators in most areas, and the federal government acts interstitially. But in foreign affairs and national security, that's not the case. You don't really have the states as a backup. So that's why you do need the executive to act in the absence of anybody else. So I would say that because of that difference, you would see, I would think you would see more uh, unconstitutional exertions of presidential power domestically. So the one obvious one, I think, uh, of recent years uh, would be the DACA DAPA programs. Although Sai and I have a disagreement about this, and it really kind of depends on how little is too little. So these are cases where the immigration laws call for the removal from the country of classes of aliens who, I agree with President Obama on this, uh, it's better for the country if they stayed. So for example, aliens who were brought to the country's children, they had no say whether they entered the country or not legally or illegally, and they currently 
are in the armed forces working in school, you know, whatever it, within the program parameters. And then the DAPA program are parents of American citizens, or I think also might include parents of DACA recipients. So I totally sympathize with the program. And I think it's Congress's job to pass an amendment to the immigration laws to save people in those two categories. It's about estimates range from like six to 8 million people uh, shouldn't be removed from the country. But what I don't think the president can do is say, I'm going to use my prosecutorial discretion to say zero cases. I do think he has an obligation to enforce the law. And it's, of course, it's a mad degree. I mean, if you said, I disagree with the drug laws, so I'm just not going to enforce any possession or distribution of marijuana cases, I think that would be a similar violation of the president's duty to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. I do realize that the president has prosecutorial discretion, which means that he can or she can allocate resources to uh, the kind of cases that are more important for the federal government to pursue. But I still think that's case by case. And I think the president doesn't fulfill his constitutional duties if he or she says, well, because I disagree with the policy that Congress passed here, I'm just not going to enforce the law in this huge percentage of the possible cases that exist. Professor Prakash, do you agree? Um, I think John and I agree on the last part of your question, which is how do we figure all this out? We're both originalists. We both look to the original meaning of the Constitution in deciding the question. We diverge, I think, with, uh, with respect to what the original meaning of the vesting clause is. John, as you, you know, as he said at the outset, believes that the vesting clause uh, has a protein quality to it that it expands or contracts depending on the circumstances. Um, I would describe the, the vesting clause as having, I think, three components. One, law execution. The president's uh, got power to execute the law. The take care clause uh, limits that uh, power by requiring a faithful execution, right? So the, the executive power is principally about law execution. Two, the executive power includes a foreign affairs component. If you look at Article 2, it looks like the president doesn't have much authority over foreign affairs. It just mentions appointing ambassadors, receiving ambassadors, and making treaties. But in fact, from the Washington administration on, presidents have assumed far greater authority. And I think that's all grounded on the vesting clause, as Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, and many others suggested. So the president can you know, send foreign ambassadors home. He can direct U.S. ambassadors. He could fire U.S. ambassadors. He can direct uh, negotiations outside of the treaty context. These aren't mentioned in the Constitution, but they're part of the vesting clause nonetheless. And then the final thing is that the president can uh, direct and remove uh, subordinate executive officers. Again, that's not expressly mentioned in the Constitution, but it is authority that presidents have exercised from Washington onwards, telling executive officers how to exercise statutory discretion and then firing them if they don't conform to his directions. So I think John and I agree with all those three points. Where we differ is the sense that the executive power can can have a different color or meaning in, in, in various exigencies or otherwise. And I think that the problem I'd have with John's theory is I don't, you know, there is a discussion in the Federalist Papers about the president being able to respond to emergencies and crises. He's absolutely right. But the question is whether that implies broad authority to do what is needed in an emergency to, to handle the emergency. And of course, we know that Abraham Lincoln, you know, kind of had John's view of the of presidential power. He did a bunch of things 
at the outset of the Civil War. But if you read his speech very carefully, his July 4th, 1861 speech, it's it's a little it's a little convoluted because part of the time he seems to be saying, I had constitutional authority to do this, and he's, there he's referring to habeas corpus suspension. But with respect to increasing the size of the army or spending money, he doesn't seem to be saying that he had that authority. Whereas I think if John's right, he had authority to do all three. The other thing about what John's saying is, well, you know, that's a domestic crisis. And if, you know, if John's right, then maybe the president didn't have that authority, right? Because John thinks the emergency power is, is broader in the foreign affairs context than domestic. I, I'm a little, you know, I, as you can tell, John and I just disagree about um, whether or not the vesting clause is supposed to expand or contract over time, depending upon the circumstances. And I think, you know, I, I'm wondering what Obama would say about what John just said, right? Because Obama could just say, look, executive power, John might have been right 20 years ago about DACA and DAPA, but today, you know, when I when I endorse DACA and DAPA, you've told me that the vesting clause has this expanding and contracting quality. And so I'll just say it expanded. Can I, uh, should I respond to size uh, multifarious attacks and interruptions? <laughs> Please do. Oh, man. Shut up, man. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm totally willing to uh, clothe myself in the cloak of Abraham Lincoln. That means Sai loses automatically in a podcast that's being recorded in Illinois, the home state of the great emancipator himself. I think Sai's got the Jeffersonian position and I have the Lincolnian position or Hamiltonian position. And I, I do agree. I mean, I, I mean, first of all, I don't think the Civil War is just a domestic, you know, dispute. It is a, also a threat to the nation's security and existence. So I, I, I actually think the Civil War is a great example of the kind of executive that Hamilton and Lincoln are thinking of. And it is true. Lincoln does ask for congressional support some of the time, <laughs> but others of the times he doesn't. And, you know, society and I have had this debate elsewhere, but, you know, I would say, you know, the suspension of habeas corpus throughout the country, you know, which he does from the first week of the Civil War and never doesn't ask Congress for approval for a, I think the Habeas Corpus Act is not passed till 1863. And then he keeps doing it even beyond the, the where the Habeas Corpus Act had said it was forbidden. The Emancipation Proclamation is, is not ratified until the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Um, so you could go on. There's a lot of examples, I think, of where Lincoln, you know, basically took this theory. And I, I actually don't claim that I came up with this defender in chief theory that I have. It really is Hamilton. Hamilton. But I think Jefferson, Jefferson had the view side does that this idea that um, you could, uh, you know, be a strict constructionist about the executive power, just like you could about Article One, maybe about Article Three, about other provisions of the Constitution. Of course, when Jefferson's president himself. He doesn't live up to, so it makes me wonder if Cy were actually president himself, would he actually live up to the living presidency or would he not turn? Would he not turn to the defender in chief as his user's manual to the presidency? Because remember Jefferson, this is a great example. Jefferson, I think he was wrong, but Jefferson thought the Louisiana purchase was unconstitutional. Jefferson thought that you could incorporate the Northwest states, you know, the Northwest ordinance states as new states. But then you have this weird view that any other state had to take a constitutional amendment to add. And so when the Louisiana Purchase came along, he thought that an amendment had to be added to purchase Louisiana and then to prepare for the state states that would come out of it. 
And he drafted the constitutional amendments himself for introduction in the Congress. But then he heard that Napoleon was going to pull out of it. So he rushed it through anyway, just uh, as a normal act of Congress. And he, and he, so he, it was interesting. So then years later, after he's out of the presidency, he, he, he runs into young Sai Prakash. And this young Sai Prakash, whose career is lost to history ever since, wrote him several letters demanding how you could, Jefferson, how could you have done this? You know, you're a strict constructionist. And so Jefferson is a very interesting difference between Jefferson and Hamilton. And so I think this is the difference between Sai and I. Um, so Jefferson said, what I had to do was so important for the country and its benefit that I did it and it was unconstitutional. And, because, and I want it to be unconstitutional because that way you don't permanently stretch the executive power and reach to this great exigency because if you do, it won't, it won't snap back. And so Jefferson said, I'd rather act unconstitutionally and ask for the people's approval rather than expand the definition of executive power. But it showed that in order to really grapple with this <clears throat> problem that the founders were very well aware of, that's really discussed for the first time in Machiavelli and then Locke, Jefferson just had to admit he was willing to act illegally. Hamilton and really Lincoln, their view is the executive power itself almost has a kind of emergency power into it so that you don't have to say, I acted according to this prerogative to violate the law for the nation's benefit, uh, but rather if there is some kind of emergency you have to respond to, it must actually be within the executive power. Neither Lincoln, now Lincoln used to say all kinds of stuff like this. He would say stuff like, oh, you know, can you sacrifice, you know, follow all the laws, but one in the country fall into ruin, or isn't it better to amputate your arm than you die? You know, he, so he would say it a lot, but actually I thought he tried to be pretty careful to justify all of his actions as within the executive power and never really say that I'm doing something unconstitutional. So take that, Sai Prakash. <laughs> <laughs> answer the question. Answer the question. <laughs> I, so just on this point, I think this is a great discussion. And just, you know, people should go look at what Lincoln said in 18, 1861. What he says about the army and uh, spending money, he says, I didn't do anything that you couldn't do. Maybe you need to think about passing legislation. When he pivots to habeas corpus, he has John's view. But that implies he doesn't have John's view about spending or the army. And it does raise a question for this idea of an emergency power, because, of course, if you really believe the president has an emergency power, you either have to think that it applies to anything that needs to be done in the emergency. Or you don't. And, you know, one way of understanding what John said is the president can just do whatever he wants when there's a truly existential crisis. That that is a defensible position, but it's not one that Lincoln took, and it's not one that Hamilton took. There were crises during the Washington administration. There was a yellow fever in Philadelphia, and Hamilton did not take the position that Washington could summon Congress to someplace other than Philadelphia, uh, even though there was this crisis. So, you know, we, we've, we've had this long tradition of there being crises, and I think for the most part, presidents have presidents have used statutory authority to deal with them. And when they haven't, you know, Congress has retroactively sanctioned their actions as Congress did with respect to Lincoln's actions in 1861. Professor Prakash, earlier in the discussion, you mentioned the legislative branch and Professor, you mentioned state governments. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on 
whether and how expanded presidential power is consistent with the bedrock principles of separation of powers and federalism? And specifically, what effects will this expansion have on the other branches of the federal government and on state governments? Yeah, sure. So the way I think about it is Congress is partly partly to blame for the state of the executive because Congress has delegated vast amounts of legislative power to the executive branch and the independent agencies. And it's, you know, it's predictable that if you give someone that sort of authority, that will help them to reconceive their enterprise as legislative and not executive. Right. And so you, you delegate legislative power, the courts themselves, you know, impose the Chevron doctrine, which says that, you know, basically the executive branches, reasonable interpretations prevail, even if they're not the best interpretation. And given, you know, those two things, plus the executive's willingness to play fast and loose with respect to statutes, a feature of both uh, the Obama and the Trump administrations, yeah, the end result is that the president is basically a parallel legislature, not with respect to every single aspect of legislative policy, but with respect to many aspects of legislative policy. There are statutes that actually permit the executive branch or the independent agencies to depart from the default rule found in the statute. That is to say, the statute says A, B, and C, and then provides in the next section, but the agency may depart from these rules. Well, that, of course, is basically saying that we've got a default rule that you can you can vary. So I think at, you know, at the end of the day, the executive branch, as I said earlier, the executive branch no longer conceives itself as, as primarily a faithful agent of the legislature. Um, and that, you know, obviously means that, con- you know, we, we see this sort of repeatedly, right? Congress is um, left on the sidelines. Professor Yu? I don't know if I have a lot to add to Sai. Um, so... So just take up the question, it's just sort of the interaction of federal power, of, of presidential power with the states. So uh, again, this is an area, and with sign, I think I think we agree because federalism itself sort of sets the outer boundaries of the federal government's power, whether it's the president or Congress acting. And so in this, you know, in this last four years with the Trump administration, you have seen the president act fairly aggressively towards states with, when they have divergences of policy, um, immigration, obviously, unrest in cities now, drug enforcement, and so on. But I'll, I'll, that these are not really emergencies. I don't think they would fall into my claim of the president having the right to act in areas where Congress has done nothing. In fact, most, and this is part of what I get at the book, is in fact, I think most of the time when the president's been doing these things, even very controversial things. He's really been acting according to congressional delegations of power, which have, you know, exercised federal power for the government as a whole vis-a-vis the states. And so I think often people who have been criticizing Trump confuse, you know, make this a separation of powers argument, but it's really not. It's really more of a federalism argument. And in many ways, uh, and maybe, you know, Cy might have the view that some of these delegations might exceed what Congress can legitimately delegate to the president. But when you look at what Trump claims, they've all really been in areas where um, past presidents have made similar arguments. So take uh, the, I think probably the one that's most controversial is the border wall, you know, which is actually kind of a combination of domestic and foreign. 
But Trump actually, when Trump first proposed the idea that he could build the wall under uh, executive authority, I actually thought I criticized him. And I said, that's not within presidential power just to build a wall because it does require appropriations of money. And the Constitution has been understood to give immigration and control the border to the Congress. But when Trump did it, he, you know, he did what a lot of presidents have done. He invoked a national emergency under the National Emergencies Act. And then there is a statute that says in the time of national emergency, presidents can transfer funds within Defense Department uh, construction accounts. And so he moved them from buildings on bases to uh, the wall. You know, that, politically, it's a controversial decision and a controversial policy. But legally, I didn't think it was all that different from what many past presidents have done in terms of emergencies, and in some ways, actually uh, narrower than some have done. I mean, some people have declared national emergencies when there was no event or when there was no, you know, sort of foreign actors involved or any kind of emergency, really, because the national emergency statutes are very, have no definition of an emergency or quite vague. But so really, the question should not be a separation process, should boil more down into can the federal government as a whole just build a wall? Can a federal government as a whole cut off money to cities and states that have different policies in the federal government? I think that's, but we don't, you know, the, I think the public attention is so wrapped up with Trump. It's, it all turns into a presidential power question, even though I don't think it really is one. Focusing squarely on the executive branch now, what is the relationship between the administrative state and presidential power? Do administrative agencies augment presidential power, or are they a bulwark against presidential power grabs, or somewhere in between? Well, Psy student note was, I think, called something like administrator in chief, or some some kind of boring, long-winded student. Type. <laughs> well, I think Psy should go first. Was it not something like that? Administrator- I'm gonna, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna give you a long, boring answer to go along with a long, boring title. The way I think about it is, you know, the administrative state is really part of the executive branch. And if you talk, you listen to uh, folks in the Washington administration, they talked about the president's administration, meaning the people in the administration, but also his administration of the law. And so, you know, the the DOJ, the, the Department of Interior, the Department of Energy, Securities Exchange Commission, these are all entities that are at least in part, enforcing the law. And as such, they are, I think, to be regarded as instruments of the executive. And so in that sense, they strengthen the executive, right? Because they give the president the wherewithal to actually see that the laws are enforced. Because no, you know, it's clear that no one person can enforce all federal law, right? It's precisely because the president can't do that, that these departments and officers become necessary. And that's a paraphrase of George Washington. Uh, that that the chief justice has cited from time to time uh, in the removal cases. So I regard these, you know, these eight entities basically as adjuncts of the president. Now they're not entirely that because they also have some legislative power, and I don't think the president has any constitutional claim to whatever delegated legislative power that Congress might grant these agencies. But with respect to prosecutions and investigations, um, I do think that they augment presidential power. But you're 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 right in a way, Miriam. That you know, whenever you the, the more agents you have, uh, the more that they can serve as a check on the executive. Because practically speaking, the executive can't supervise all that goes on in the executive branch. We've seen that repeatedly uh, during this administration, right? As as individuals have 
uh, either undermined or whistleblown or, or what have you, various things that the president has tried to do. But in the main, the executive branch, I think, is meant to, uh, or the administrative state is meant to augment the chief executive. It doesn't. It just doesn't always work out that way. You can go back to Jefferson and see this, right? So Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State. He hired this uh, newspaper man, you know, Freneau, to be the translator in the uh, Department of State. Freneau was also publishing an opposition newspaper critical of the Washington administration, right? And so this was a situation where Jefferson was undermining the administration. He got Hamilton to write Helvidius while he was a member of the administration. So there's always people, it, you know, it's, it, there's always people that supposedly work for you that are trying to undermine what you're doing. And it's, you know, it's, it, it wasn't, it was no less true 200 years ago. I, let me just supplement what Sai said. I, I think we both agree. You don't even have to have an expansive theory of the presidency to argue that presidents should have the power of removal over everyone who takes part in enforcing the law. And so presidents have that power over the executive agencies. Uh, but I think, Miriam, your question involves not just the executive agencies, but also the independent commissions and bodies and all those which is what a lot of people think of as the administrative state. And so I think Cy and I probably both agree, both agree with Hamilton here. And actually, um, Jefferson had this view too. Madison did not, but Hamilton and Jefferson both thought the president has this removal power. I think Cy and I's argument is whether the president's executive power also has a substantive component. So I sometimes tease uh, people of size ilk by saying they have the uh, – HR theory of the presidency, which is just the president's just the head of human resources of the government. And he can fire, make sure you do all the right training, but has no real power of his own substantively. The interesting question, I just wanted to add something politically, uh, a political dimension, which is that um, presidents have this uh, in powerful incentive to try to exercise as much power of the agencies too. So if you think of Congress as foisting off legislative decisions, policy decisions off to the executive. That's why they like to create these agencies. And then the, the voters will hold the president accountable for basically everything that happens in the country involving the economy anyway. Then presidents will want to take over the agencies or exercise control because they're being blamed for what those agencies do, no matter how much control he has or not. So presidents should want to exercise control over the FCC, even though they don't have power to remove the commissioners, because people, the electorate, blame the president for what the FCC does anyway. The voters don't really make a fine distinction uh, that the FCC has, you know, divided membership, partisan basis, and it's balanced, and so on and so forth. And so that has led to important exercises of executive power, but they're, again, they're more like the HR variety, this idea that you know, so I mentioned removal, but also this idea of can the president centralize regulation making so that every regulation that issues from the administrative state has to pass a cost-benefit test. There's no statute that gives a president that authority. But there's nothing necessarily in the Constitution that says he can do that other than or she can do that other than the power to execute the laws. But, you know, Reagan first did it. And then after Reagan, actually, presidents of both parties have continued that in practice. I don't think that's something that's required by uh, emergency power or not. That's just uh, how the executive tries to keep house, for example, uh, I would put it. 
A little over a week ago, President Trump announced that he would nominate Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the vacant seat on the Supreme Court. Judge Barrett's confirmation would likely produce the most conservative Supreme Court that the United States has seen in generations. How do you think a conservative court would approach issues of presidential power? That's an interesting question. You would have normally thought that this court would be extremely favorable to executive power if you were just looking at the backgrounds of the people on the court. So to the people who've worked for the executive branch, and so in the process of that have supported as lawyers, broad readings of presidential power would include you know, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Alito. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. True. Yeah. Justice Alito was a U.S. attorney. Justice Kagan. And Justice, I don't think Justice Breyer actually worked in the executive branch. And Justice Sotomayor, I think, was a prosecutor, but was not, you know, sort of a D.C. type executive, you know, was not involved in the D.C. law policymaking world. But right there, you've got like six of the eight sitting justices should normally be quite sympathetic to executive power. So, I would think that adding Barrett wouldn't change that, uh, you know, change that direction. You know, she herself, you know, was, is not, was not like a White House counsel or in the SG's office the way some of the others were. I haven't really seen anything in her writings that would suggest anything one way or the other. They're more interesting questions. So I think this court generally would be supportive of presidential power. It's more interesting question is whether, uh, these recent um, decisions trying to hem in the executive are really just like sort of one ticket only cases because of Trump. And because John Roberts is increasingly skeptical of Trump's claims, you know, the, the, for the four years as a whole, I don't think that's been true. So uh, for example, the court was quite deferential to the executive in the end in Hawaii versus Trump, the travel ban case from the first year of the administration. But the court has now been fairly, I think, has been hostile to executive power. You could see that in the DAPA and DACA cases, the, which I, I still just don't think makes sense for the court to say President Obama's use of prosecutorial discretion cannot be removed reversed by a president unless they use the Administrative Procedure Act. I just, I just don't see how that's possible. But I think that's quite hostile to the, uh, the executive, especially the idea of the executive that I put forward, the one that has to act quickly and decisively in response to circumstance. So, but I tend to think this might just be Trump only because I think when the decisions reach so far and are so inconsistent with past decisions and the past understanding of the executive, it seems to me the answer is really more like a political decision. Professor Prakash? You know, I think with respect to removal, there's already a majority that's looking to pare back or eliminate cases like Humphrey's executor. I don't think that changes with uh, Judge Barrett joining the court if she does. You know, with respect to the chief and uh, his relationship with President Trump, I, I kind of wonder whether he regrets his decision in Trump versus Hawaii and is now making up for it in all these other cases by questioning the president's motives. You know, it's like, you know, the official on the field gets a call wrong and then they just, you know, keep on giving calls to the other team. And I think there's an element of that which would be consistent with John's view that the chief might be thinking about this president in particular when he's writing some of these opinions and maybe these doctrines don't last very long. But you got to remember, even though the conservatives are, are thought to have a, 
a pro-presidential power view. It was the conservatives who dissented in Zivotofsky, which was the passport case, right, uh, involving Jerusalem and Israel's claim to Jerusalem. It was, you know, it was Kennedy plus the progressives plus half of Justice Thomas. You know, he, he basically split his vote that decided the president had an exclusive power of recognition. And it was the conservative types who said that he didn't. So, you know, it's possible that uh, executive power, you know, cleaves in different ways. Right. And if you go back, if you go back to the Obama administration and the recess appointments clause, the conservatives voted against President Obama's claim. Right. It was a nine to nothing case. And the only reason why you had concurring opinions is because they disagreed with some of the more pro-presidential aspects of Justice Breyer's opinion. So these cases, you know, they're not always predictable with respect to how presidential power is going to come out. And I'd, I'd be surprised if we could predict now what Judge Barrett might do if she were to reach the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Professor Prakash and Professor Yu, thank you so much for joining Briefly. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Miriam. Take care. This has been Briefly, a podcast of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UShyLRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.